1: He just could read what people were saying and what they really wanted to do and I think he's always been good at at looking at, at a patient and trying to match him with a career.
0: Hi, once again, and welcome to the Nemours Champions for Children podcast. I'm Carol Vassar, and that was Dr. Michael Alexander, retired chief of rehabilitation services at the A.I. DuPont Hospital for Children in Wilmington, talking about his mentor, Dr. G. Dean McEwen. The two first met in 1960 when 12-year-old Michael Alexander arrived at the A.I. DuPont Institute for extensive treatment due to the effects of polio. Dr. McEwen had landed at the Institute just two years before as assistant medical director and surgeon-in-chief. As we learned in part one of this two-part series, Dr. McEwen took a keen interest in his patients, providing them with opportunities for growth whenever and wherever possible. Michael Alexander, that meant summer's shadowing residents and taking on basic research projects before he even set foot in medical school at the University of Virginia. Dr. McEwen also demonstrated a powerful example of hard work.
1: The day before he would go in to do a surgery, I would see him get out the anatomy textbooks and the original paper describing the surgical procedure. So there he was, a senior medical director in a hospital, and every night he still was prepping for surgery he had the next day. And he just didn't waltz in and try to rely on on his checklist.
0: Hard work that led to success, and Michael Alexander soaked it in. Parlaying the opportunities and the positive examples said by Dr. McEwen to become a strong, confident student and doctor, whose focus would be on patients and families.
1: When I was a medical student, I had done an orthopedic elective first, and now I was the anesthesiology elective, and I had the same attending, and um, he had this tendency to keep pulling my patient down to the end of the table so he could get cast on better. And I knew it was my job to keep that head of that patient right there by all the machines. And when the case was over, he put his arm around me and he said, you know, these kids, you did a good job. You were really leaning on me the way you were supposed to. And I said, well, you know, you had your job and I had mine, sir. Learned a lot there before I even got to go to medical school. Um, As a medical student, There was once a clinic, and I was empowered to make decisions and talk to families that I wouldn't have been able to do if I hadn't had that previous experience.
0: That previous experience included having to deliver the worst possible news to the family of a young child with spina bifida. It was a situation that arose while spending a summer working at the Institute as a rising college senior. And a resident called upon Michael Alexander to use his skills speaking Spanish to deliver that news to the family.
1: I had to use my Spanish speaking skills to explain to that family what happened. I remember getting out the dictionaries and looking up all the words and trying to get everything straight so that I'd be able to talk to them. I knew they'd be coming in scared. I knew they didn't speak any English. As far as the an additional help I had for doing that is my father had been stationed in Mexico City for four years, so I was a lot more fluent in Spanish than the average college graduate would be. Having learned how to speak Spanish does nothing to to help you understand how to talk to the family. I spent some time asking the resident, what do you think they're going to say? How are they going to take this? and but, you know, he wasn't that much older than I was at that point in time. And secondly, he was in an orthopedic residency. So he hadn't had many opportunities to tell a family that their loved one died either. So we were kind of in the same boat together. Part of that, I spent translating for him. and But part of that, I found I, I had to be able to react to what they said so that um, I could get them back to where he wanted them to be. To be honest, I felt good. I was able to do that and help help those people through a difficult situation. So at one level it was gratifying. It was uh, at another level it was scarier than you know what. I was more worried that I'd use the wrong word or wrong tense or wind up saying something that that would scare them. You know, they thanked both of us for talking to them and they said they understood and. They were very religious people, so it was.
0: Some people would have run from that and said, no, 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 I can't do it. What gave you the strength?
1: Well, at a comical level, I can say I had trouble running away from anything. So (laughs) Um, it just didn't seem to me to be appropriate to do that. I had a mother who had been a nurse and, you know, was always um, wanting me to confront things and and work through them and and, uh, help people and do what needed to be done. And I'd already had the model of, you know, the Dean McEwen saying, well, are you sure you really want to do that? You know, so could sit there and think, am I sure I really want, would want to walk away from that? And it wouldn't have even occurred to me.
0: You talk about being able to talk to families. And did you come at that a little differently because you had been a patient at one time?
1: Well, I think I always did. I I also always, you know, I I knew that some of the greater physicians over the years were individuals who prided themselves in listening and speaking with the families. Sir William Osler, you know, once said that it's more important to know the person with the disease than the disease that has the person. So he's arguing that we're there to treat that person. Uh, the oath we took when I graduated from medical school was uh, Maimonides' oath. And in it, there's one sentence that says, I will always view my patients as my fellow suffering humanity. And again, it, it puts that in perspective. So between a combination of, of having lived with a disability and then getting to interact with individuals, who were were good role models in that, it, it was pretty easy to do that.
0: And when it came time for Dr. Alexander to choose a medical specialty, Dr. McEwen was there to help him consider his choices from a practical perspective.
1: I was in medical school and he said, now, what specialty are you thinking about? I said, oh, I want to be an orthopedist. And he said, no, you don't. You don't want to be an orthopedist. He says, that would be a problem for you. And I said, well, why would that be a problem? He says, as you get older, you're going to pick up pains and weakness and changes in function that may affect how well you can stand and get around. And he said, while that's happening to you, you don't want to be in an operating room realizing that you've got to last another 45 minutes and even be tempted to cut the operation short or the example he used with me is he said not put your sutures close enough together you know why put 10 stitches when 7 will do he says you don't want to be there to do that and he said that there's this new field called physical medicine and rehabilitation and he mentioned to me that there there was a physician here in wilmington uh, that was the the first rehab medicine doctor in delaware He says, you really need to um, do an elective and and go find out about that field. And my faculty advisor in medical school, who knew Dr. McEwen and and respected him, uh, gave gave me the same advice. He said, he is so right. And I'm glad he broke the news to you and I can help you digest it. But he said, you'll be so much better if you don't have to, to do the actual surgery. He says, but you'll be better than a lot of the rehab doctors because you will know what the surgery does and because you've already seen it and you have experienced it. So I, I decided to do that. As a resident working in the emergency room, I, I got to put those skills to use. And when I was on electives and rotations in medical school and my residency, I, I participated totally in what was going on surgically But I I knew I was not going to continue to do that.
0: Dr. Alexander pursued the nascent field of rehabilitation medicine, establishing himself as a skilled clinician in Ohio and Pennsylvania, taking on adult patients and being pursued by senior clinical leaders back in Wilmington to have him return to the Institute to use his skills working with patients at the very same place where he himself had once received care. After turning down the offer twice... Dr. Michael Alexander returned to the AI DuPont Institute in 1986 as the Chief of Rehabilitative Medicine, working with Dr. McEwen's successor, Dr. Robert Doherty.
1: And I realized he was going to be the new honcho for the facility and that it was going to be taking a new direction and offered me the job and wanted me to be in the Department of Pediatrics as a division of rehabilitation, not within the Department of orthopedics in the Division of Rehabilitation and at the time that fit, fit more with the national thinking with where our, our field wanted to go that we had many more conditions we were involved and interested in working with than just children who had had orthopedic you know surgery or or had orthopedic conditions because we wanted to be involved in in respiratory rehab and neurologic rehab and cardiac rehab post-cancer rehab and when I saw that that was going to be happening there as well that coincided with just the year before I came they had opened what I always call it the first new hospital and I would have a, a, another attending there that would help me to take care of two units of, of 20 beds that would be for our rehabilitation patients. Now the job just had everything I needed, the right politics, the right location. That was in 86.
0: And you stayed until eight years ago? Eight years ago. And you've seen a lot of transition. You saw the transition from the institute to the hospital and the hospital to a healthcare system. What was that like?
1: Well, you have mixed feelings about it. I thought it was fine. I think at the same time, there were other changes going on and medical care and the, and the incidence of different disabilities that made it a little hard for a while. Initially, as I said, you had 20 inpatients who had had severe brain injuries, but Delaware began to develop emergency medical transport and sending EMTs out to the field to resuscitate these children and, and, and take care of them. They had the, the development of regional trauma centers And then the care for these children improved dramatically, and they were doing a much better job of resuscitation, better ways of controlling their intracranial pressure. We had better diagnostic tests so that we could quickly follow what needed to be done with them. Initially, uh, we would have to send our patients to Christiana if we wanted complicated imaging or MRIs or CT scans as that technology started to evolve. And of course, by the time I finished my career, all those services were available in-house. We had our own neurosurgeons and we were able to care for them. So the beauty of that was, is is you went from needing 20 beds to maybe five beds, yet the number of kids you were treating was going up. So we had to develop the ability to do um, outpatient rehabilitation. So one of the big important evolutions I was proud of is we developed comprehensive outpatient rehabilitation services. So we were able to give the child everything they needed, social work, education, all the therapies, acute medical assistance if needed, without having to keep the kids admitted in a hospital. And as, as that changed, that freed up beds for other areas to grow. One of our big, sad, but kind of nice days was the day we surrendered one of the two units to the cardiac program because they they were now coming and they were going to be bringing patients and they brought some children that again needed rehabilitation services so again we were we had this outpatient program and we still had the inpatient program and so as we got better at outpatient the inpatient went down for a while until our own hospital was able to bring in the kind of kids that were more acutely injured with other kinds of problems. So as we got hematology, oncology grew, and we were able to do that. We were there to to work with the kids that uh, had been sick that way. As we got respiratory therapists, pulmonology specialists, we were able to take care of those individuals. So it kind of changed. It became busier again. You know, you weren't there all summer, everybody, or for months, you know, eight months is the first kit, but we adapted to that, and then we just moved that through further. We went from having one double-boarded specialist, namely myself, to I believe we're up to um, five full-time rehabilitation people there, all but one of whom we trained in our own program. We became a, a, a training place for people that wanted to do pediatric rehabilitation within just a couple of years of when I arrived. Initially, we took people for a one-year fellowship. They came and spent a year with you and giving them a chance to be responsible and, and run the team meetings and learn all those skills that were necessary. And then from us, they would go off and they would then do that. They had to have been trained in physical medicine and rehabilitation training program, which meant they got some pediatric, but they had mostly been trained on taking care of adults. And then we went to the point where these fellowships had to be two years long, but now they became eligible to sit for a a certifying exam in pediatric rehabilitation medicine. And then I really wanted to be able to train to produce people that were double boarded, that were competent pediatricians and competent rehabilitation medicine doctors and blended those together so then finally we hit on our current model which is the combined pediatric and physical medicine rehabilitation residency and these individuals spend five years so they they train longer than they do for either of those other two fields But when they finish their combined residency, they are eligible to take both board exams. So our people finish, and everybody we've trained has been able to pass both of their boards. Uh, They get all their adult training through Jefferson, and they get their pediatric training through us. And they kind of rotate from one world to the other over the five years. So as they gain more competence and experience, to keep coming back to us and doing uh, children. And the net result is, is we've trained some very fine physicians that coming out of their fellowship then have gone off to create other programs, some very academic, some very private practice, and some almost purely research. Again, that's something I'm very proud of.
0: Other points of pride in the, the trajectory of your time at Nemours?
1: Well, the other thing I was very interested in, and I wanted us to do was, I was insistent that we do family-centered care and involve the families in our rehabilitation process. When I started in the field, you'd kind of meet with the family after the team had decided what to do. And then you'd set them down in a room, and you would explain to them what the team wanted to do next. And then you'd sort of get their input. But you know what that would be, feel like to the parent if 10 people have already decided what they want to do, and then they ask you what you think. You're not going to really feel like you got to say anything at the formative stage. But that was the way it was done everywhere. And I began to um, think about that. And finally, I decided that I wanted the family there at the team meeting to hear all the discussions so that they would get a better feel for what they needed to know. Because after all, they were going to be in charge of the child the minute they took them out the front door. And there was pushback from people that didn't want to do that. How can we, you know, talk about their behavior if the parent is part of the problem? That that was the main thing they were they were worried about. And I said, You're going to get very good at talking about it without upsetting them to the point where they leave the room. I'm going to get have to get good at moving the meeting along and follow their level of agitation. And I said, you know, I'm going to have a psychologist and a social worker at the table to help me do that. So I really think we can uh, make this work. So we had switched over to that when at the national level, the Association for the Accreditation of Rehabilitation Facilities, or CARF as it was called, wanted to create pediatric standards. And at that time, I was serving on their board And I said, ah, let me volunteer us at Wilmington to host the the meeting where we set all these standards. So for four days, we had people from a number of different places that were doing pediatric rehab and different styles and formats all meeting together to come up with what the core requirements would be like to then be promulgated by CARF, which then would accredit these facilities and being able to do comprehensive, coordinated pediatric rehabilitation care. And so those standards were written in part based on what we were already doing in Wilmington. Years before family-centered care had uh, came to cu- catch on in pediatrics and stuff.
0: Was any of that, that family-centered care concept, was any of that a result of having spent time away from your own family as a patient?
1: Well, only, in, only that it did, it did give me this perspective that I had, that, you know, that the family was integral to, to the care of the, the child. But again, that's like so basic to the field of physical medicine rehabilitation. That just made me comfortable right away in that field. And again, going back to, uh, you know, Sir William Osler, they knew that we had to know more about the family and the person then, then in some ways you had to know about the disease you were working with. Things have changed over the years and the principles of rehabilitation have adjusted to them. And by that, I mean, uh, our field uh, was interested of course in the, the war injuries, but then in the, the highways, produced chaos we were interested in that with aids there we there was a lot of need for rehabilitation in these people when it was devastating their brains with uh, hemophilia and sickle cell, cell disease we went through a period where we were needed and now they i, I just saw position paper and guidelines the other day for dealing with these people that have had covid who are are having problems that are are perfect for a a rehabilitation physician to be able to aid them with. I picked a very flexible field as long as you were willing to to uh, shift from one area to the other.
0: It sounds like you were able to adjust and enjoyed doing so.
1: Oh, it was it's fun. I, I thoroughly enjoy it. I still lecture once a week to the residents.
0: How are the residents different than they were back in the day?
1: They're not that different. They, they are still very caring humanistic people that are trying very hard to master a lot of information and, and deliver it and are working hard at developing skills to help them interact with families and patients. You know the expression, the one-eyed man in the land of the blind, it can be king. So A.I. DuPont was a place where a young man who needed braces and crutches to walk during that summer, he was there in the summer camp, got to be more of a leader and more of an influencer than he might have been able to do in his regular high school. For me, at least, it was an opportunity to be the instigator and to, to be the, the person pulling things together and making things happen that allowed me to run you know, for office and be in the student body association. I ran for vice president of the student body and I got elected. I mean, I ran against four other people. And got a majority of the votes on the first ballot, but I wasn't in the Kiwanis Club or any of those things. What I heard was the reason I got invited my, my senior year was because they had never not had the vice president of the student body, if he was a male, to be in the Kiwanis Club. So clearly they had somehow they missed out on that, and they needed me. So I said, "Well, okay, I'll I'll, I'll join you guys. I can." I can handle that. But uh, I I think it makes, uh, again, the difference.
0: Dr. Michael Alexander. Dr. Alexander was the chief of rehabilitative medicine at Nemours from 1986 until 2013. Thank you to Dr. Alexander for taking time to be part of the Nemours Champions for Children podcast, which puts the spotlight on Nemours associates like him and you. Want to tell your story? It's easy. Email us at podcast at Nemours.org. That's podcast at Nemours.org and we'll set up a remote interview. Don't forget, Dr. Alexander's story is one of many covered in the just-released book on the history of Nemours called Nemours Children's Health. It's by Nemours CEO Larry Moss along with Nemours Associates and is available from Arcadia Publishing. Look for the link in the show notes for the episode that you're listening to. Our production team this week has included Peter Adeby, Deborah Griffin, Karen Bankston, and Savannah Pettit. Our music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions in Turners Falls, Massachusetts. The podcast is available on Nemours Net and the Nemours Now app, along with your favorite podcast app and your smart speaker. On behalf of Dr. Michael Alexander, I'm Carol Vassar, and we thank you for listening to this edition of the Nemours Champions for Children podcast. Until next time, stay safe. Stay well, and thank you for all you do for the children we serve.